My name is Dr. Reese Granger. Welcome to Head First, the Concussion Podcast. Hello, and welcome back to Head First, the Concussion Podcast. This week is muted for the last couple episodes. Apologies. We're going to touch on the VOMS component of the concussion, okay? Sorry, the vestibular and ocular motor component. Before we start, important notice and caveat I want to insert here along with the normal post-episode stuff. This is just not advice, okay? And we're going to walk through things and familiar concepts and ideas once again. In the case of all these exercises that I discuss, they fall under the ruling of optometry and vestibular and ocular motor specialists. So, as an example, this would be, um, I can test for accommodation and convergence, okay? This falls under my scope of practice and registration. However, if I do find some neurological deficiencies to do with purely, let's just say, the visual system, I cannot prescribe exercises like a pencil push-up, okay? I would have to refer out to the specialist. And the vestibular component and the system, same thing again. I can do things such as a Dick's Hall Pike, log roll maneuvers for crystals in the ear canal. Anything more, same deal. I have to refer out. Now, it's like everything with building therapies. Networking is extremely important and making sure that you stay in your own lane, your own scope of practice. So for myself, I need to network with GPs to diagnose for a concussion, neurologist, optometrist. You kind of get the gist where I'm going, okay? In terms of the structure of today's episode, we follow the normal structures we go through. I'll go over some anatomy tests, how to interpret it, some rehab, and I'll also go over the cleaned up section. So with that said, cleaned up. So with cleaned up this week, going a little bit rogue and off topic, as it really irked me, and I'm going to touch on ACL injuries, okay? We'll touch on some concussion stuff at the end, but just hear me out on this one. Now, this conversation came up in my local coffee shop, and it was due to the tabloid articles in the newspaper, and I thought this would be interesting to share and point out, as it also stemmed from Sam Kirk injuring her ACL, which I'm pretty sure we're all heard about by now. Now, the prelude was the individual was saying that more research needs to be done in women's ACL injuries, as they don't care enough about the sport like they do in men's sport. Now, whilst I always agree, always more can be done and should be done in terms of research regardless age groups, categories, in terms of its men, women, mixed, children. The comment was a little ill-stated and lacked context and I asked them to unpack this and their answer and why they said this and straight away they started straying off topic and I ended the conversation as I couldn't get them back to the original topic and the talking points. So what do I mean by this? In general, with ACLs, women are 3.5 times more greater at risk than any other sport, okay, like in compared to males as the baseline. Now, this is broken down into intrinsic factors, which includes things such as like biological differences between male and female athletes, and then you've got extrinsic factors and these are things that can actually be controlled by the player and the coach. So first, we've got intrinsic factors. These are like anatomical differences. It's been stated and talked about the hip-to-width ratio. This needs to be broken down further, however, for the simplicity. Okay, so you take the total ratio of the absolute width, which equates from, I think, to the femoral length, okay, of, and the hip. And more importantly, this is greater in females than males. And also, females have greater cue angles. Now, this angles from the ASIS to the midline of the patella and then back up to the tibial tubercle, okay? This is important due to the biomechanics and the direction of force that's being produced that goes straight through the quadriceps. 
Now, before I get shredded, yes, like anything, multimodal factors that influence this. Then there is that females, they've got different shaped and smaller intercondylar notches placing more strain on the air cell. And then furthermore, you've got the neuromuscular components such as muscle mass coordination because this helps stabilize the knee when it comes to direct forces. You've also got female hormones which are responsible for creating greater ligament laxity which I wonder if a study's been done on the timing of ACL injuries and uh, female menstruation. But anyway, okay, I digress, sorry. And then you tie this back again into muscle mass and development. Lastly, for extrinsic factors, then this also leads to the mechanism of injury, sorry, stumbling on my words. Whereas if you actually look the female dynamic position into the knee, when you watch sports on TV, whether it be AFL, soccer, basketball, Females demonstrated more valgus collapse in general, placing more force and load through the ACL. So therefore, we've gone through the intrinsic factors. Now let's touch on extrinsic factors. This is pretty self-evident. This comes to training load, uh, what else, sports play, game day versus practice in training. Then there's the funding, the resources. Yeah, it's important to note the women's professional sport here, it's been a rapid growth and it's only been professional for about the last five years I'd say that's probably a stretch and then because before that's always been semi-professional in men you'd go back to the 70s and 80s an ACL tear was a career death sentence once you'd done your ACL that's it they said that your career was shot so after a long-winded point of view I love a good debate I love being schooled I have done many times over thing is if we're going to have a good debate regardless of what topic it is always try and stay on topic and this is for concussion as well we got to look deeper than professional quote opinion what the newspaper article says and what a research article says and i'll touch on this uh, research article which i was reading and a point that got pointed out to me with subconcussive impacts and concussion as well so i'm going to bring that up at a later date i just haven't finished dissecting it yet in terms of the concussion with the cleaned up segment, Patrick Mahomes, just putting it out there again, I'm not picking on the bloke, it feels like I am. If you've seen his helmet smash the other day during a game in the NFL, all I could think of was the amount of G-force that was going through his head on that. must have been absolutely insane for that to happen to the helmet. You can only think what went through his brain and his neck. Now in terms of actual proper cleaned up segment, this one's aimed at the NRL, they just changed the... The kickoffs and the dropouts and the rules for that, stating that they wanted to make the game more predictable, uh, more unpredictable, sorry, and create more excitement. Yet, the same context, they said, oh, we're hoping it reduces the risk of concussion. Yet, if we go back on the flip side, they're going to Las Vegas for round one, and they advertise the brutality of the sport as their main draw card with no pads, extreme hits. So, I'm a little bit confused. What angle are they taking here? Are they trying to reduce concussion or are they trying to promote violence of the sport now on with the show so in order to start with the vomit component we can't just dive straight into the vestibular ocular motor okay we have to do a clinical history which is then followed by the neurological exam to determine the underlying cause of an individual's signs and symptoms that they're displaying whether it be concussion or they come in just saying look i've got a headache and neckache it doesn't matter what it is that's always the process we do this will then direct the course of treatment that we we take and then if we need to order any specific tests the rehab that we decide to partake in 
or if we need to refer out because they got some underlying big bad nasty that set your spider senses off. Basically like a puzzle, okay? And everything kind of comes together. Now, when you ask someone what's up, pretty much most people will give you enough information in order to do this and figure it out. So I usually go, once I've introduced the person to myself or, we've, you know, we've done our formal introduction in the waiting room, I'll point them to my room. I'll let them walk into my room. I'll either stand 10, 15 metres in front and call them in or I'll stand behind and let them walk down the hallway and tell them that my room's on the right-hand side. It's the first room and then I'll watch them walk in, okay? So I just want to see how they walk, get a gauge with everything like that. Once we get in, a little bit more formals, I just pretty much say, hit me with it. How can I help today? And then I'm quiet basically till they invite me to speak unless something really hugely important. And even then, I let them take time to actually continue what they want to say, and then I dive deeper into that when the person finishes. Now, for the sake of this discussion, we've ruled out all the big bad nasties and any immediate referral, okay, verbally, unless you say, I've done the upper and motor neuro, we're all good, we've done the cerebellar testing, gait, etc., etc., okay, we go into the cranium. Now, look, side note, cranial nerves is usually the first thing that... I do as well, and everything's kind of mishmashed together. Now, cranial nerves, we first find the abnormalities in the vestibular and the visual problems, okay? So if we remember, we got cranial nerve 2, which is the optic, cranial nerve 3, which is the oculomotor, cranial nerve 4, which is trochlea, cranial nerve 6, which is the abducens, all for the eyes, and then we got cranial nerve number 8, which is the vestibular cochlea for hearing imbalance. So... What are the big ticket items here that we're looking for and what are most common that people when they come in after a concussion or we'll say whiplash associated disorder and injury, they have trouble focusing, reading, concentration, memory, headache, motion problems, sometimes a bit of dizziness or all the times a bit of dizziness. I was always told basically when we're going through cranial nerves that eyes are the gateway to the soul or the brain because they just tell you so much. We're going to go through some tests that we'll do with the cranial nerves relating to the eyes, which is going to be your visual. We'll start with some visual field. Now, this is like a H style pattern. We get the patient to follow our finger. We move it around in a H, looking for abnormal eye movements. Then we go to smooth pursuit. I'll have a pen or something similar is about a meter away from the front. I move it left to right at a controlled speed and I'm watching their eyes for smooth pursuit tracking back and forth. If there's anything that's abnormal in their eyes, it's going to usually present as like a clear, jerky type of moving, and it's not going to be smooth like it states, smooth pursuit. And we're also looking for saccadic eye movement. Again, I'll have something like a target or a pen one meter back, and this time I go in like a diamond shape, back and forth, stopping at each point, then the patient will move their eyes towards the target as quick as possible. So let's just say I'll go out to your right, you stop, you flick your eyes out as fast as you can to the right and try and focus in on the target, okay? Or alternative, I'll have two targets a meter out in front and I'll get you to flick your eyes left and right in a controlled manner, back and forth. If it's going to show up as positive with saccadic eye movements, obviously it's going to be in the eyes. But then also there might be some dizziness or you might undershoot or overshoot on the actual target. Then I'll do accommodation and convergence. I'm looking for adaptation in visual or conversion of the eyes. So I've pretty much, again, I've got that pen one meter away, fixate on that pen. I slowly bring it in towards you to your nose. Okay, 
and then as your eyes are looking at that pen, they'll converge in on it, as the name says. And I'm also looking at your pupils, see if your eyes naturally rotate in, how your pupils dilate. If they don't dilate, focus in on that object. And that's pretty much the eyes straight up. You've got the, the Schnellen chart as well, which we're all no optometrists use. Look, we can use that, but for concussion, it's kind of out of my scope wheelhouse. But technically, in the cranial nerve exams, I can use it. But I'm more worried about big ticket items first on this. And that's basically the eye movements and the eye patterns for the vestibular component, as I just said. Now, all this is over in about five five minutes, three minutes, everything is kind of mashed into one big component and you go through quick, okay, if everything's all normal, I move on. If something's abnormal, I stay there and I try and reproduce the signs and symptoms. Now let's move on to the vestibular component. Now we got the head impulse test here. I have a patient looking straight at me. I slowly move the head towards and then quickly turn the head back towards me so what I mean by that I just use towards the same so if you're looking at your patient I move your head away let's just say to the right so you're looking away and then I grab your head and I move it really quickly back towards me I, and then you'll be looking at me and I'm looking again in your eyes for nystagmus and other symptoms okay sometimes look again this can cause balance dizziness vertigo this test is kind of a mixture between eye movements and the, the vestibular component. Now we move purely to the vestibular component and we're looking for BPBV. Okay, so benign paroxysmal positional vertigo. I always mess that word up. I have for many years. This is most common. And by most common, I mean the most common cause of peripheral vertigo that occurs with brief periods of assuming a particular head position which is the benign proximal positional part and then the overall pathology. This is caused by micronized crystals or like calcium crystals deposits that have become dislodged from their normal location in the, the utricle which is a bone in the ear and they're usually embedded, embedded the crystals in this like gelatin like material uh, it's hard to describe but anyway they, these become detached they're then free-flowing and they go through the semicircular canals and pretty much without, okay, without giving a huge anatomy lesson on it, really deep diving into that, it pretty much just gives you a sense of where your head is and where you are in space when you go through rotation. Now, if there are enough of like these calcium crystals, which I think off the top of my head they're called like otoconia, anyway, if there's enough of them floating around, They'll aggregate into one large clump and because then they're heavy, they migrate into the lowest part of the inner ear because they've always followed gravity and this is the posterior semicircular canal. They may still move when the head changes position such as looking up and down and over the shoulder or we roll our head over like when we're in bed and it's these movements of these stones that cause this unwanted flow of the fluid in the semicircular canals and then we stop our head moving and then it stops and this leads to like a false sense of the head and the body actually spinning around and like the world spinning around us when it shouldn't be. It's because of these crystals floating around in the fluid. To examine this, we'll use a Dick's Hall pipe. So basically I have you sitting up on the edge of a bed or the, t the actual treatment table, okay? And then I drop you off the back of the table, neck at a 45 degree, really fast. 
Now you'll get dizzy and positional nystagmus, which is your eyes clinically beating side to side, typically unidirectional, and this slight rotation component. And there's usually a delayed onset of two, three seconds for these crystals in the ear to actually catch up in the fluid. And then I'd say that's positive for BPPV. Let's just say we'll put these results together, okay, of the vestibular component that we found and the ocular motor component. So let's say you got some vertigo, nystagmus, I've checked your ankle reflex, which is fine. Vibration and provisional sense, they're also fine, yet you struggle to stand and balance with one eye closed. I can say it's BPV and with a vestibular component of ataxia. If you have some less or more of other signs or symptoms, then you start to think like cerebellar lesions, uh, what else, Mirren's disease... Basically, there'll be some other components there, and 9 out of 10 people actually wouldn't end up in my office. They would end up at the doctor's practice anyway, because there's basically probably a growth or a tumour or something, previous infection. However, it's that one person that doesn't go to the doctor and rocks up in your office that you actually need to know. I should note that there's actually a vestibular ocular reflex, and this stabilises like the images that we've perceived by moving in directions of our head. Now, Again, in the terms of oversimplification, let's just say our head moves to the right, our eyes move to the left to maintain focus, and the information we see then crosses over the brain and goes to the opposite side. So, this is all great, but where do I go from here, you're saying, all the magic rehab in inverted quotation marks. Now, this is where it's a little bit frustrating with the thing in concussion in Australia, it's outside of a manual therapist's scope and it's part of ophthalmic rehabilitation but here's that but i can also help and all is not lost this is where the multimodal approach is actually needed as we've always talked about and i refer out to the correct channels however a lot of the same things we've talked about here present with whiplash associated disorder classic signs and symptoms and if you want to get a little bit more controversial there's also a thing called cervicogenical dizziness, which again presents with the same signs and symptoms. Now, I'll treat for them. It is in the research, but again, cervicogenic dizziness, there is this debate. Now, this is where, in my opinion, that concussion needs to be a two to three prong approach, okay? So, yes, I've always stated you break up the visit, you find out what the underlying issue is, and you're able to exactly pinpoint it. But you just say, let's go ocular motor rehab for four weeks then we go vestibular rehab for four weeks then we go the cervical component for four weeks now all of a sudden we're 12 weeks in the hole nothing's working psychosocial component starts to kick in myself as a practitioner and yourself as a patient we got one hell of a task and a hands trying to rectify it now it's not that i'm saying specific modalities don't work but we're kind of isolating it so what happens if there's a tiny bit of vestibular component there's a tiny bit of ocular motor component and then we've also got a tiny bit of survival component and we're knocking each one but individually we need to kind of work together and get the whole lot done at once. If I go back um, as an example, let's just take ACL rehabs, okay? If we're only doing one exercise at a time, the ACL and all the surrounding structures isn't going to repair, it's not going to heal, we're not going to be able to get back to return to play, okay? You need the three to four to five exercises at a time, the hands-on manual therapy, the coaching, same principle applies here with concussion, okay? So we kind of got to do everything at once. We go through all the vestibular, ocular motor, cervical, 
and we're able to hit it on the head in 80 to 90% of cases. And it's only that 10% that then turns into post-concussion syndrome, which then is that because they haven't seen anyone and there's a little bit of a misdiagnosis. Again, we don't know. But there's some suggestion out there that about 25% of concussions are purely vestibular and ocular motor and the other 75% is a makeup of everything else. Look, we don't know again. However, that's what the research is starting to suggest that everything has to be taken on board and tackled at the same time. Long-winded approach. Hopefully the vestibular and the ocular motor components made sense. It was a little bit hard trying to, again, talk through by myself on that kind of component without questions and you're always trying to jog your memory and you're thinking of things as you go along. But that's basically it. It sounds like a huge, complex task. In reality, it's straightforward if you know the underlying anatomy. Now, that does take a while to learn. Always stay in our scope of practice. we got to refer out when we need to refer out. Get people to give you the correct exercises. All work together. And that's basically it. Thanks for listening. Again, find us all on the socials. And we'll see you next episode. And that concludes today's episode. Even though I'm a registered chiropractor, All the information provided today is based off my interpretation of the research and is of my opinion and my opinion only. This is not a substitute for professional medical advice of your doctors or physician. If you believe you are suffering from something similar or the injuries discussed in today's episode, please contact your medical practitioner. I am your host, Dr. Reese Granger. Thank you for listening.